What's up, everyone? You're listening to At The Bridge Pod, episode 24, and today we have a special episode for you as we have our first ever guest on the podcast, and we're going to be talking all about the Crystal Palace game. I'm your host, Mikey, so let's get this special episode on the road. Welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of At The Bridge Pod. I'm your host, Mikey, and today I'm joined by our very first ever guest on the podcast. Now, with our guest being a Crystal Palace fan, I thought with Chelsea's recent game against them, it was the perfect time to invite him on the show. Now, if you're a Football 365 reader, then you may already know him from his mails in the mailbox or even have heard his name on other podcasts. So joining me today is Ed Crow for the Raven. Hi, no, thanks for having me on. I didn't realise at the time that I was uh, going to be your first ever guest. Uh, that's quite yeah, amazing. first, a big name. Literally, your quote for the Raven, but it's a big well, name. 13, 13 characters of it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, first off, got a quite a fun opening question. Before we talk about the game, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came about to support you in Crystal Palace. Right, well, unfortunately, there's a really boring answer to that one. But when I was born, the house we lived in is... Exactly. I have measured this. It's exactly halfway between Selhurst Park and the Palace training ground. So that's okay. why I'm a Crystal Palace fan. I didn't really have any choice in the matter, did I? Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's fair enough. I mean, it, it's, always, it's always really interesting to hear how people like sort of get into supporting their like their local team or like their big team. Because obviously we kind of all have like a Premier League team that we follow, but also almost sort of like also a local, local one. Like yours was, uh, I believe it was Grantham. Yeah, I since... Well, I came up to, to uni in Nottingham and then I stayed up here basically. And so for about, about the last 10 years, I've lived in a little town that's about halfway between Nottingham and Grantham. And so when I, my son decided he wanted to start going to watch football, we uh, started going to, to Grantham Town. They're in the, they're in the third tier of non-league. So it's a, it's a small ground and it's, it's got an athletics track around the outside of it. But we, we have good fun there. They let the kids in for free. So that's always a, good, that's always a big thing. Yeah, there's so much good community about local clubs. Like my own one, they had an, they had like an Arsenal invincible season a few years ago. It, they just it's just such a good atmosphere and that local side. I mean, obviously it takes some travelling to get there, but you know, it's still it's it's football and live football is always the best kind of football. You know, seeing it on TV is all well and good, but local football, community yeah, football, definitely. it is brilliant. In like in ideal world, you know, I'd be at Selhurst Park every week, and you know, you'd be at be at the bridge. But, yeah, you know, exactly. The world gets yeah. in the way, doesn't it? So uh, exactly that. To sort of you put know, your energies into uh, into um, into something that's local, where they're gonna gonna benefit from from you, you know, paying your cash to go through the turnstile. But yeah, at the same exactly time, I still, I still think I'm first and foremost a Palace fan, just as you guys are. Chelsea yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that is the thing. It's with the kind of the big Premier League teams, you know, especially the likes of ones in London as well, because of how the economy is in London. It's almost like its own unique in its own unique yeah. bubble as well. You know, if a couple of fans don't turn up one week, it doesn't really matter. Whilst in the non-league sort of pyramid, you know, yeah. they can have 300, 400 people. If 50 people don't turn up, that is an, it, it, such an impact on their, like, coffers for the week. Yeah, definitely. It's like with non-league day. I think at Grantham we had an extra 25 fans turn up for non-league day. I suppose everyone pays their money to get in. That's an extra extra couple of hundred quid that goes towards running the Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, it's... So. it's it's very. It's always good to sort of support the local team as well. I've always found. Definitely, yeah. So we'll get to the game. It ended in a two 0 victory for us, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. That's our sixth consecutive league win, which takes us nine clear of Arsenal in fifth. Which is, you know, at this point of the season, it's still quite surprising for me, considering how uh, we were talked up to be not even in the top six. So it's a great start. 
on the day, Frank Lampard decided to rest Azpilicueta for the game and he brought in Reese James on that right side of the defence to combat the threat of Palace's Zahar with his pace and his ability to always create. You know, it's worked, it worked wonders on the day. And in my view, Reese James, he was able to nullify Zahar for the majority of the game. So, Ed, what were your views on the performances of Reese James and Wilfred Zahar and how that sort of battle went over the 90 minutes? Well, I don't think it was much of a battle, really, was it? I thought James had, a, <laughs> had an absolutely superb game. I mean, he was helped in part by the Palace tactics of defending very deep, uh, leaving Zaha quite isolated, I thought. But in those moments, you still have to be very sharp. I mean, you know, Zaha's strength is in beating players one-on-one, and yet he was kept incredibly quiet. Now, I'm going to get carried away a bit here, but... Go ahead. I'm make an art of a huge comparison that's probably going to hang over him like a, you know, like the, uh, the knell of doom for the rest of his life. But it was a bit like, it's not all that long for Palace that since we had to throw Aaron Wan-Bissaka in at the deep end. Yeah. Um, I mean, his first few games, he was up against players like San and Sanchez and Mane and uh, Eden Hazard. But he didn't look out of his depths at all. He took on took those opponents in his stride. I mean, those games that Palace lost, but, you know, he played superbly well. And uh, because he did, we knew he had a star in the making. You know, you could say a similar thing that, you know, for James, if he's playing that well against, against someone like Zahar, that's a real feather in his cap. Yeah, the exactly. The trouble is that everyone's going to know that he's um, that he's had this game against a player who is so dangerous, and they're going to they're going to be aware of him now. That's exactly that. I mean, obviously, I didn't really know much about Wan Bissaka last season, only through fantasy Premier League. You know, having him into my team, going, this guy's a bargain at four point five. You know, he's like, <laughs> you know, and this year you've got John Ludstrom of Sheffield. It's like, oh, <laughs> this is brilliant. There's always one little hidden gem, but you know, he got his big move, obviously to Manchester United and it's sort of it's a shame because obviously he's a local lad at Palace and you know you're either going to probably lose Juan Bissaka or Zahar and obviously Zahar he's such a creative he's he's got that hazard ability I've always found like he can create something out of nothing and yeah. you know Reese James for me it, it was such a great tactical decision because you know Reese he has physical attributes he has the pace and you know for a young guy, he's such a top athlete already. And yeah. compared, you know, you look at Azpilicueta, who, you know, he plays every game. I mean, he's, I've, I've talked about it on this pod before for like, I think it's like three, four seasons. He's played nearly every game in the league, which is crazy, really. I mean, that you've got to be fit to be able to play week in, week out. But he doesn't have that pace or that physicality. Right. He's also, um, Azpilicueta, as great as he's been for the past few years, he's always been really poor against Palace actually if, you know, people go back and look at those games even games where Chelsea have come out on top he's not played very well there's been a, there's been a mistake in there somewhere that's you know, let Palace back into the game and it's been it's been sort of marked out all the time because he's been so consistently good the rest of the time we just had a bit of a jinx on him so I do wonder if, um, if uh, Frank Lampard had that in the back of his mind sort of sort of a horses for courses type thing and realised that for some reason as Piquetta whether he's up against um Zahar directly or not, you know, in a back three or a back four. He just, he's never, he's never really played that well against us. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, he got an own goal. And I think it was in the one where we lost to you at Sellers Park. Was that and... the one where, where we hadn't scored all season? I was like, there was an own goal in that one, was it? We hadn't scored for seven games. So then even, you know, no Some, points. Yeah. And we played Chelsea and somehow we pulled a 2-1 out of the bag. It, it was, it's a bit like, that was, you know, we spoke about uh, on Twitter, we did you and I about West Ham yes. as well. You know, it's kind of like, you go, it's like, this is going to be an easy game. You know, they've not scored or won. And, ah, oh, how, how have we given them three points? It, it's, it, I don't know, it just seems to be, whether it's a psychological thing or not, it just seems to be bad luck. But 
you know, with your point, Aspilicueta there, you know, when you're up against a player of the quality like Wilfred Zahar, as, as I said, he can create something from nothing. And he's such a special player. And if, if you can shut him down, which Reese James was able to, you know, you almost nullify a lot of the attacking threat from Palace, yeah. I found. Yeah, I mean, one of the things with Zahar is that he draws players towards him. His, one of his main roles in the team this season seems to be draw the attention and create the space that way. So, yeah, but if you've got a defender able to handle him one-on-one, so you haven't got to get centre-backs or midfielders coming over to, to be reinforcements, then there's no there's no space for either the Palace midfielders or Jordan Ayew to, to exploit. And I think with, you know, with James handling him so well, it kind of it allows the other players in the in the Chelsea side to, to concentrate on their own roles rather than having to having to help him out a lot. Where so uh, it meant there wasn't that space for, for Palace to exploit, and it meant that Chelsea could be a much more balanced side and control the game very effectively. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this season's so different because obviously, you know, you've got so in a way a rookie Premier League manager because obviously Frank has only managed in the Championship, yeah. and. You know, last season was so different with under Sarri. You know, you kind of knew what kind of game plan he'd bring out consistently. And, you know, in the game, again, Tammy Abraham, an absolute revelation this season, which is great because the curse of the number nine at our club has been, you know, it's been insane. And the amount of strikers we've kind of gone through, you know, he might not, our best striker, even though he didn't wear the number nine shirt in recent years, has been Costa. So, you know, we've been looking for that next like sort of central focal point. And obviously Tammy Abraham, he got his 10th goal in the league. It was a lovely, lovely finish. And an even lovely flick on assist from Willian, you know, who himself, he had a top game and he's someone we talk about a lot on this pod. But someone else we talk a lot about is Kovacic. And, you know, I felt he had a top class game. So as a non-Chelsea fan, most have struggled to enjoy Chelsea and their style of play in recent years. However, looking at this Chelsea team, 12 games in, is it the most enjoyable side the club have had in recent years, in your opinion? I definitely agree with that. I mean, Chelsea have been, I think, far more like, I've had a lot of likeable players over the years. And you know, I think going back to sort of the Hullet and Viali days, admittedly that was at the same time as uh, Dennis Wise was in the team and he wasn't really everyone's cup of tea, was he? No. Um, but um, and then even like the Mourinho sides, one of the early ones, you know, they're players like, Good Johnson and Damien Duff, who were very easy to admire as a as a neutral, Ian Robin as well, and uh, you know Lampard. But I think you know this is on a, a whole different scale. I think you've got you now it's through sort of unusual circumstances with the transfer embargo, but it's really been, it's been a very long time since any club has sort of had such a large group of really talented youngsters coming through, being given first team football all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of a lot of people say trust your own and it's been so like I'm not going to be ignorant to it. You know, all it's a it's a win game that it's, you know, you have to win games to keep your job. That's kind of that is football nowadays. You know, you don't sort of get that bedding in period of a couple of maybe a season or even two to three to bed your team in and get and develop it just it's it's yeah. results now league and you know it's it's a shame because obviously last season they could have Hudson Adoy and Sarri I saw both sides of it obviously as a fan I wanted to see this incredible academy player who's got such potential play but you know it's the risk of Sarri thinks he's probably got in his mindset if I bring him in and he doesn't perform and the, we lose that match and I could have brought in say a more experienced head I'm going to be on the, the chopping board, so to speak. So yeah. you sort of see both sides of it. It's it, They're trying to look after number one, but then it doesn't 
it kind of hampers the team. And then obviously going forward, you you saw Hudson Odoi potentially leaving, and you you know I couldn't have blamed him for doing so because you know you want to play football. That's kind of why you're you're, you're in the game, yeah. and you're at such a young age. And he's seen the likes of Jade and Sancho leave a big Premier League club in Manchester City, go to Dortmund, play week in week out, and become such a high high respected and regarded talent. You know he's a player that's gone from probably a a couple of million pounds at Manchester City to, you know, fees of over a hundred million are being talked about. So, you know, for me, this is obviously, I've absolutely loved, we might be just 12 league games in, but I've loved every minute because it's kind of, I don't dread the next game. It's, oh, can't wait for the next game. What, how are we going to, how's it going to go? And, you know, and also seeing Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Tammy Abraham, especially him, you know, it's just yeah. great to see. And it's that feel-good factor and you can feel it within the crowd. And, it, you know, I think... For Abraham, there was a real danger he was going to get trapped in that sort of, that uncomfortable zone of, you know, destroying teams in the championship, but only really being trusted to play for a, a team fighting relegation in the Premier League that, um, but that, where that you wouldn't see the best of him. And actually, with Chelsea this year, with all the players they've had um, coming in, the youngsters, they, um, they seem to have... Uh, decided that they're going to stick with them no matter what. Um, yeah. Well, not, not quite no matter what, because if, if someone turned out to be terrible, then they won't get in the team again. But they're going to give them chances. And, it, you know, they're being encouraged to play sort of a, you know, a game where they can express themselves a bit rather than being in a very regimented, strict system, like a sort of a, a Roy Hodgson-type system. Um, but, you know, it's a system that, it's an approach that can lead to youngsters making mistakes. But... On the other hand, players make fewer mistakes if they're comfortable in what they're doing, they're confident about it. That comes down to the likes of uh, Frank Lampard and Jody Morris and a load of other coaches and things I don't know. Um, because they, they seem to have really put a lot of faith into these youngsters. I mean, there was a game early on in the season where you guys lost uh, quite heavily to Man United and that would have been the excuse for a lot of managers to sort of throw that approach in the bin. But that's yeah, really, that's very fair. really been a complete aberration compared to the rest of the season and actually you know it's I don't know I think for I mean we've we've had a on a similar scale at Palace or sort of different scale but similar approach over the years where we're a team we've had absolutely no money so we've had to bring players through but once we sort of started to hit the big time um, that was when it kind of dried up the managers that we had for most of our Premier League era not managers that necessarily trust young players whereas actually the likes of um Wilfred Zaha, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, they're the last, the last two um, youngsters that have come through the club. But actually, over the years, quite a lot of good young players have come out of the Palace system at some point. Um, in all positions, either, even in, as well, we've been sort of like a sign players up for not very much money, even out of non-league. Ian Wright, for example, came from non-league. He was a bit older than a youngster when he came, but he was out of non-league. And I mean, he was devastating for us and he was, uh, went on to be Arsenal's top scorer. Yeah, exactly. Um, with the game, overall, the performance I felt was quite a complete one from Chelsea, which was nice, you know, good defensively. The whole team worked as a solid unit. You know, the likes of Mason Mount worked tirelessly, as he, he seems to always do. And Godo Kante came back into the side, added that extra strength in defence. Who who from the game on the Chelsea side stood out for you? Well, we've already talked about Reese James. That would be one. Yeah. We could do an hour on how, how great Reese James could possibly be, but, but let's not. Um, I'd say I'll do, have to go with a really obvious answer instead and say Christian Pulisic. Um, yeah, he was devastating against us. He, uh, and he'll be, he'll pose a lot of problems to teams that are a lot better than us as well. Um, he really seems to have taken to the Premier League like a duck to water. 
Yeah, he really he struggled at first because you know he was beat, he was on the bench, he was not getting the game time, and there was a lot of like talk on social media of you know he's a he's another fifty million pound plus flop, and I thought you know you've got to sort of give him time. You know he's he's coming in from a, a new a new league. You know it's got a complete yeah okay. There's similarities with the Bundesliga and the Premier League, but it's still a new league, a new country, and you just have it does take time to adapt. Some people. And players, they adapt instantly and others take a little time. You know, you like the look of Fabino at Liverpool. You know, when he first joined, it was he barely got a run in the team. And when he did, he wasn't too impressive. And he's, you know, one of the best players in that squad now. Yeah, um, I think with, with Pulisic as well, you've got the added thing that, you know, because he's American and, you know, every so often you get an American player who... who Make, works their way into sort of one of the top leagues, and all of a sudden they become the great hope of the, the U.S. men's national team, and they carry the, carry the whole weight of expectation of this huge country. That you know, it's a huge market, isn't it, for, for yeah. football, especially for Premier League. Even if, but their own league isn't really up to it. I mean, you think about you know Freddie Adu back in the day, and I'm not saying Pulisic is going to be <laughs> burnt out, but you know there was that. You can if you remember, he you know, Adu was supposed to be this huge star but just never quite lived up to the expectations. Whereas I think Pulisic going to Germany and playing for a side like Dortmund, where you know they, they do require players to be incredibly technical in a league that, you know, even by the standards of the Bundesliga, which is an incredibly technical league, and then coming to coming to Chelsea, I think that will have done him a lot of good in terms of how he's going to sort of make his way in, you know, at the very highest levels of club football. And I think that's that's kind of showing. It's kind of his... You know, he's, he seems to he seems to seems to belong. I think you know it's again down to down to the manager and his coaches getting taking the time to make sure the player is settled without sort of throwing in this expensive signing at first. You know, it's like the same way that you know people expect I don't know, an expensive toy to just come straight out of the box and work straight away without you having to do anything to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's because as well as you know he's come in after you know, the departure of Hazard. And it's kind of, I feel that there was the expectation of, well, are you going to, f- are you going to fill this guy's boots? Are you going to, and, you know, that's an extreme amount of pressure. And he's still, he's a very young lad as well, Pulisic is. I think that's sort of in this kind of day and age, we sort of forget how age and maturity actually comes, comes into play. And we also, sometimes we forget how young some of these players are, you know, Reese James, you look at his performance and you wouldn't think, oh, he's 19. You, you just sort of get a little bit lost in it really. So, in the last five matches, Palace have had three losses, a draw, and the one victory. Now, many expected yourselves to be down the bottom end of the table at this stage, which you aren't, which is good for you. But how do you feel Palace are performing so far this season? And what are your like, realistic expectations for the rest of the uh, season? Well, I think we've been up, we've been in the top for a bit, and people started saying, oh, they could be really about to break into the top six, which is obviously rubbish. Um, <laughs> and then we've sort of started to slump a bit. But I think... That's part and part sort of a quirk of the fixture list. But if you look at the season so far as a whole, generally speaking, we've uh, we've beaten teams that are below us and we've lost to teams that are above us. You know, I mean, Dixon's definition of mid-table there, isn't it? I mean, yeah. You throw in a hilarious win over Manchester United. That was uh, probably been one of the highlights of the season so far or of any season, really. Um, I think, though, people are starting to get a bit, a bit wound up, a bit frustrated with... Um, with the, the style of play, it's getting quite dull. Um, you know, we're seeing very safety first and the favouring commitment to a solid structure instead of sort of an attacking endeavour. I mean, like on Saturday, for example, it took us 86 minutes and being two goals down to even get a shot on target, which was quite miserable. 
I mean, there are understandable reasons why you'd want to play like that for a club of our size, especially against you know a, a, a team like Chelsea. But at the same time, people get annoyed because in the past, when we have sort of thrown the shackles off and been a bit bold about, well, we're going into this game that everyone expects us to lose. But if we play like, if we don't play like that, we play like we've got nothing to lose instead. We might actually pull off a famous win. Well, you know, we've had a couple. Let's say we've had a couple of good wins over over Chelsea in recent years where expectations haven't been that high on us and you know, the, the Man City win last year where you could get you could get low, shorter odds on City scoring four times than you could on Palace scoring once and, somehow and what a goal what a goal oh yes <laughs> well, that, that, I've, that should have been that was goal of the season as soon as it happened just incredible well there's a funny story because um, I was uh, in pre-season, I was uh, able to go to Nottingham Forest versus uh, Crystal Palace. And after a Palace corner in the second half, right in front of the away fans, the ball was punched out by the keeper to Townsend on the edge of the box. And almost everyone in the Palace area sort of got up off their seats, waiting for him to, to weigh in the top <laughs> like he did. And he just completely missed it. Oh, uh, this is the groan from about... What about 1,500 Palace fans, something like that, groaning in unison was just, uh, you know, we just, you can't, you can't expect people to do that every time. It was a one in a million time. It, it really yeah. was. So, it, this is obviously a, a Chelsea centric podcast after all. And over the summer, our former captain, Gary Hyde Cahill, he joined your side. How do you feel he has, he's, he's been doing so far and what has he brought to the dressing room? I think, actually, he's been one of the signings of the season in, uh, in terms of value for money, if nothing else. I mean, uh, you know, when he was announced, there were some sections of the media, including our uh, beloved Football 365, that sort of thought it was a perfect example of Palace's lack of ambition in the transfer market. But I think most most Palace fans and most Chelsea fans would have seen eye to eye on this and realised that we were getting a, you know, a, a sensible. It was a sensible, low cost and low risk signing. I mean, I think he was signed ultimately to be a backup option in a position where we've had quite a lot of injuries in the past couple of seasons. But he's been so much better than that. You know, he's brought leadership, experience, and just as a as a defender who's played at the highest level, just to get a tune out of players who haven't made it made it there. I mean, he's been at one point we were on a ridiculous run of clean sheets, and we had Gary Cahill and uh, Martin Kelly as our centre back partnership. The great behind us, but that's you know, I mean, Kelly is a hard working player, but I think even he'd admit he's not not the most talented defender in the world. But playing well with Cahill, you know, you need a centre-back partnership and they just work so well together. And Yeah, he has so much experience. I mean, you know, he's, Gary Cahill, he's one of those players who will always put his body on the line. You know, he's got that sort of John Terry-esque ability and passion where he, he just, he's just so, such a great guy to have in that defence to lead. And, you know, I was still shocked that Arsenal didn't actually go in for him and actually make a serious offer because he, he okay, he's gone to Palace and he's definitely, you know, brought his experience and he's improved that defence. But, you know, Arsenal, considering how poor they are at the moment as well defensively, I feel they'd have been much better off with Gary Cahill than David Luiz. But, you know, he's got that true professional ability about him. And obviously, you know, he has won it all at club level. You know, his first season at Chelsea was, you know, six months after he joined from Bolton, won the Champions League. And he put in top performances in that run to the final in Munich. Yeah, I mean, he's coming in a, that particular time. That was quite a difficult time for for Chelsea, wasn't it? I mean, the sort of it was at the end of the it was at the ABB era that um, yeah, he yeah, and came in and you know, and there's always. I mean, the thing about hey, I heard you saying on the last pod about um, about you know why didn't Arsenal go in for him? But I think that you know Arsenal would have looked at 
why he why he sort of went out of favour at Chelsea, you know, and maybe that's why he didn't make an approach for him. I mean, you know, as well as I do, he's a defender, he knows his role, and then at the moment he's in a side that does a lot of defending, where, you know, you can put, you need someone that can put their body on the line. Whereas, you know, I thought with Maurizio Sarri last season, and perhaps with Nyemri the last couple of years, they want, you know, at least one centre-back in their side who's you know, a bit of a ball player, prepared to bring the ball out of defence. You know, even if that means someone, you know, they don't have someone with the defensive positioning organisation, all the things that Cahill is really good at, that we, we're reaping the benefit of now that Chelsea have decided that, you know, not to offer him a new deal. So, but with Arsenal, I mean, you know, maybe they went for David Luiz because that's the style of defender they were after, you know, as a completely different style of defender to, to Cahill, really. Yeah, I mean, they are, like you said, they're so, such a different contract, opposite ends, I'd say as well. You know, David Luiz kind of, as much as he is, you know, being a big NFL fan, I am, you know, he's the quarterback. He can, he can ping a long ball and, you know, and he has that passion and drive. And when I saw him play in, in person, when I watched uh, Villa versus Chelsea many years ago, when Lampard broke the goal scoring record, I saw how David Luiz, he was running everywhere, but as much as it's great to see the passion and you think you've just allowed a huge gap behind you, you know, Gary Cahill doesn't do that. You know, he sits as a rock. He'll go up for the set pieces, but, you know, he's a rock and a consistent in that defensive structure, which, you know, and as you said, Palace are more likely having to defend based on how they put their style of play and all that sort of thing. And obviously where they sort of, they're about, a, they're like a mid-table team, really, unless you have obviously, like you did under Frank De Boer, a horrendous start. You know, yeah. Gary's kind of, he does what he does best, and that's being a professional and a top defender, defending, you know, and I'm sure he'll continue to be. He's probably one of the most unsung signings of this season, yeah, without a doubt, you know. Value for money, I don't think anyone's going to beat him because he was it, obviously it, free signing, but it was sort of thing where, you know, a lot of people looked at the negatives on it, but for, from a from Palace's point of view, for a club of our stature, when a player like Cahill becomes available for free, you know, that does mean you could pay, put more to towards his wages than you might have been able to if there was a fee involved. Exactly. And, you know, if you get someone who is a 34-year-old centre-back who isn't as mobile as maybe he was, but is still the organiser, you know, you think, well, if he can, you know, if we need someone who is going to be, you know, that rocket, as you said, in the middle of the defence, um, you know, a team that's, that's going to have to do a lot of defending. So it was a perfect option. And if he can't play every game, well, he was a free signing. What, what do you expect? But as he has played every you know, pretty much every game and he's been one of our best players doing so it's been it's worked out really well for us exactly so before we go I'm going to talk Wilfred Sahar again so whenever we mention Sahar's name it is usually due to either yet another impressive display from him or transfer speculation obviously over the summer it was it was definitely a talking point will it be him or and Wan-Bissaka leaving obviously I don't know if he did put a transfer request in. I'm not really sure if that if that was just a little bit of rumour. But, you know, he obviously wanted to leave and everything. So I know you hate to answer it, but if he does leave Palace, be it January or in the summer, coming up in 2020, where do you feel he should go? Right. Well, funny enough, um, at this day, one of the big rumours doing the rounds is that Manchester United want him back. But so that, 70 million. I, well, for that, what I've said is, uh, I've said before, I'll say it again, that if he wants to play for a bang average mid-table side, why doesn't he just stay at South as well? <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. But, look, I had a theory in the summer that, um, I could, uh, there's no evidence to back this up, but it's one of those things that you come up with a theory and then you start finding evidence that fits it. But basically, I thought he'd be persuaded to stay for one more year in return for Palace ask, lowering their asking price next summer. 
on the basis that they get a year out of him where he's playing out of his skin every week to try and earn his big move, knowing that if he doesn't play out of his skin, then no one's going to be interested. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, like, a bit like the Ronaldo situation and likely, obviously we don't know for sure, but like Hazard last season, it was like one more good season and you get your dream move. But I thought well, as well, I mean, this year, I mean, to another, throw another name into the mix, I thought this summer we were a bit like Spurs were with Gareth Bale a few years ago, that basically didn't want to sell him unless somebody came in with some absolutely silly money, as Real Madrid did for Bale, and it put everyone off Zaha this summer, which worked well for us. Um there's also the fact that you know, we have got to pay Manchester United a slice of the, the transfer fee we receive. And also we've got to then find someone that can replace him. And at the moment, there aren't a lot of sort of off-the-peg ready-made replacements for Zahar that are going to come at anyone's sort of budget. Yeah. But what I thought was that, I mean, if they were to reduce the asking fee to say somewhere in the region of sort of 60, 65 million, I mean, that makes him a viable signing for most of Europe's top sides they're looking for players in their first team pictures. I mean, for example, that's what Man City paid for Riyad Mahrez. And last season, I looked this up. In last season, he made the twelfth highest number of appearances for them. So oh, that's right. okay. sixty million quid for someone that wasn't even among their, their first eleven in appearance makers. Um, so, it's a bit uh, difficult. It is a bit difficult because obviously, if you do sell him to Manchester United for seventy million, you know you've got that twenty-five percent sell-on. He's got, they've got that sell-on clause in the contract. So you're only getting around like 52, 53 million. So yes. you'd almost be better off selling him away from Manchester United. Now, you know, I, I've always thought, you know, everyone goes Dortmund and everything if Sancho does leave in the summer. But if he does want to go to Germany, you could also throw Bayern into the ring because obviously they're going for Sane. Sane's had that horrific knee injury. You know, yeah. they, you know they've lost Robin and Ribery. It's possible. Well, I'd like to see him go abroad just so that he doesn't score against Palace. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. All the players seem to, seem to do that. But I think that, you know, uh, somewhere abroad where, you know, it's more about, you know, somewhere where you can find uh, you know, the conditions that the city style of play, which is the, the direct running, the using skills to beat defenders, reliance on technical ability. I don't really watch enough foreign football to to have a, you know, a real informed opinion of, as to which team would be the perfect fit for him. But, you know, I, you know, I watch a bit of a bit of uh, Serie A and a bit of La Liga when I can. And there's, you know, you, go, you don't get that many teams that will sort of do the similar sort of commitment to blood and thunder and high pressing that, that you get in England. And one of the things he's complained most about is the fact that defenders like to leave one on him. And no, I mean, no one likes that, but it's something where, you know, if, um, if a... A chance to play in a Champions League team in another country came up for him. Then I think you know, for the right, if the right price came up for Palace and the right was the right offer for him, I think he'd entertain it. Yeah, and I think it'd be fair because obviously he's coming up to the the peak years of his career, and if he wants to play in the Champions League, that's why it was you know quite funny when Arsenal's name was mentioned. She thought they're nowhere near Champions League yes. quality at the moment. Likewise, Man United. Yeah, what's what's you know. Arsenal, you know, as much as in history and stature, they're a big club. However, you want to play Champions League. If you go to Arsenal, you're going to be there for two, three seasons. You're not going to get Champions League under in, in that team, in my opinion. So going abroad is potentially the best option. I mean, but I then it, it might work. It might have to sort of like ride the markets a bit because there's always like, you know, teams open up. I mean, well, Arsenal was probably off the table because they signed Nicolas Pepe for a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so straight away, and it's something where, well, you know, if if Manchester United can't for, are in the picture, but then they go for someone else, it's like, is there a space opening up for where that player was, and can he go there? Are they then prepared to put that 
that sum of money into signing a player that's probably going to be slightly older. I mean, you know, if you look at or if you look at Bruce Dortmund, who if Sancho goes there, will have the money. But would they be prepared to replace someone like Jadon Sancho, who is very young, with somebody who is, in football terms, significantly older than he is, and so who they would only have for well five years at most, and even at the end of that five years, there wouldn't be a sort of resale value that yeah exactly how, how do you feel Wilfred Sahar is going to be remembered at your club when, when he does inevitably leave yeah. well I think he'll be remembered as possibly the most skillful player our club has ever had I mean that's a bit of sort of recency bias but you know the, we've had a lot of tricky wingers over the years but none to the level of Sahar but at the very least it'd be our, the most exciting forward we've had since uh, since Ian Wright that's, I mean, that's that's a big comparison as well, you know. It is. But I don't. It's not one I make lightly. It's a bit. It's a bit weird because everyone seems to. Everyone seems to form their opinions when they are first get into football. Who's your favourite player? Who's your favourite ever player? It's always someone that you like to be about seven or eight. There's me yeah. thirty-five with Wilfred Zara as my favourite player. I, I think people also forget when you say Ian Wright. You know, people know him as a pundit, and soon the uh, that guy and I'm a celebrity. But yeah. you know, he's he was such a. a such a talent you know you know back in the day I was a bit too young to remember any of his games but obviously I've seen the highlights be it on regular football shows well, be it football focus for a while he was Arsenal's all-time top scorer but before that yeah. he scored over 100 goals for Palace yeah someone we, we were in the second division and he was he was signed out of non-league but he had quite a we're going to too much. We had quite a checkered pass, but he had a chance at Palace, and he grabbed it with both hands. We had the the right and bright partnership up front. But so my my earliest football memory is probably sort of going back to the start of the pod and talking about um, you know, what got me into football was the 1990 FA Cup final, which was when Palace played Man United. And you know, I've seen for a, actually for a piece of football 365 when uh, it was it 2016 when we had the, we were in the cup final again against Man United. Yes, um, I went back and watched the uh, I watched both of. Uh, I watched, I watched the semi-final where the Palace beat Liverpool 4-3, um, which Wright missed with a broken leg. And then I watched both the final and the replay of the final. Um, and then Wright was on the bench for the first final. And he came he came on towards the end towards the end of the game. Might even been an extra time. But in the first year, the ball came, long ball came up the field to him and controlled it. And then uh, put <laughs> Gary Pallister on his backside. <laughs> I think it was Gary Pallister. It was one that was the one... The United centre back it wasn't Steve Bruce. I mean, we're not we're not talking about rubbish defenders here. We're talking about quality defenders. Oh yeah, incredibly stupid. And that's just how you know. So even before he was Arsenal's top man, he was our top man for a bit. And uh, but yeah, I think that Zaha deserves to be mentioned in the same bracket in terms of just how exciting a player he is. I think. Well, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I was going to say with um, Zaha, I think that you know he'll leave with the blessing of the fans because. He'll, um, yeah, he's given his all to the team. He's earned the right to play at a level that he won't ever reach with us. But I think at the same time, you know, we'll always have in the back of our minds that you know he did have his big move to Man United before. It, circumstances meant it didn't work out. So, but so I think the door will always be open to him coming back. Yeah. But I think that I think he'll be able. To, I think he'll. But yeah, I think he'll. I don't think anyone will be too disappointed in him if he just you know if he does leave this time. Well. With that, we'll bring to a close this special episode of At The Bridge Pod. And I'd personally like to thank you, Ed, for taking the time to be on our podcast and hopefully have you on again in the future. Before we go, though, where can our listeners find you on social media? Well, I'd just like to say thanks for, thanks for having me on. It's been, a, been great fun. Um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Ed Quoth the Raven. 
Um, yeah, I don't tweet a great deal though. Um, but yeah, I occasionally get involved in a bit of silliness regarding non-league football and Palace stuff. But yeah, that's where I am if anyone wants to have a look. Yeah, you'll most likely see your name as well on uh, Football 365. Yeah, I'll or... give people a good chance to check the spelling. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so listeners, give Ed a follow on Twitter and I will catch you up with you all on the next episode. We will return next week where we will talk all things Chelsea. So until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at at the bridge pod. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. 